Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from Eddie. Eddie writes in and says, long time listener, been listening to you since the Linux Action Show days. My family is moving away from WhatsApp. I know you're a big Telegram fan, but I am reading a lot of good things about Signal. Would you care to talk about your reasonings to use Telegram over Signal as a group family chat? Thanks in advance, Eddie. So let's start. Uh, let's start with this. I, I, I want to be very clear. I would not use Telegram over Signal as a family messaging app, and I'll explain why. And I'll explain how I got there. Uh, back in the day when I was looking for an IP messaging app, and this actually started back in the JB days, we started on Viber. And Viber had early support for Linux, and so we started there and eventually moved over to Telegram primarily because the support on Linux was so much better. When you installed Viber on Linux, you did not feel like a first-class citizen. It really felt like it was something that was hacked on and just, oh, yeah, and here's the Linux version. Telegram, on the other hand, is one of the best messaging apps, the best experience messaging apps I've ever used on, uh, on Linux. On top of that, the client is open source. The problem with Telegram is, first of all, they develop their own crypto um, instead of using established cryptography, and that's all, almost always a no-no. The other problem with Telegram is that the server is not open source. And so if the server is not open source, then the product in general is not open source. And so we can have our own Telegram clients, but we can't necessarily run our own Telegram servers. And of course, the problem, the big problem that that puts us in is you now have one company, one organization, one place that is ultimately responsible uh, for your messaging. And when that server goes down, you just can't, you can't message. The other thing is I was such a heavy, there was such a heavy user base on Telegram, specifically from the open source and Linux community, that I was, I felt fairly confident that they weren't going to pull support from Linux. And indeed, a few years later, here we are, and, Tele, and Telegram is still one of the, the nicest experience, uh, messaging experience you can have on Linux. And I would compare that to Signal even, because the Signal app, of course, being a uh, an Electron app, you know, it doesn't, for example, shrink down to the uh, vertical messenger style uh, size that you would maybe want that window, whereas, of course, Telegram does. Um, and so there, the, the biggest problem though that I have with, uh, with Telegram is that, again that they invent their own crypto and that there isn't a lot of security auditing that has gone on. The security auditing that has gone on has said, hey, we have some fairly serious questions about the security of Telegram. And of course we can't host our own server. So that kind of rules it out. So it was a nice sitting place for a long time until we had something better out. Now let's talk about Signal. The thing about Signal is, Moxie Marlin Spike is a is a fantastic individual and really understands technology. And so it's why when he creates a tool, voices like Edward Snowden come out and say, hey, anything that this guy makes, you guys should be using because it is it is that good. And so from a security perspective, Signal is fantastic from a privacy standpoint. Signal is fantastic from a uh, user uh, uh, 
support on Linux. Signal is pretty fantastic. But there are a couple of shortcomings. So first of all, again, as I mentioned, I think that the UI uh, for Signal on the desktop is really not ideal because they're primarily targeting mobile. And then the biggest thing is the requirement of a phone number, which is true for both Signal and Telegram. First off, a phone number destroys your privacy because it can be tied back to your real identity. Second of all, I don't really want my kids having a phone number. Uh, they're, they're below the age of five. They don't need a cell phone, and I don't need to be paying a monthly fee for every user I want to communicate with. If they don't have a phone number, they shouldn't be prevented from using an IP platform. The entire idea of having an IP platform is we didn't have to have a phone number. Now, random Linux user who happens to be on Arch, by the way, in the chat room says that Signal no longer requires a phone number. And so they may have dropped that requirement since the last time I've looked. But um, but that, but that messengers that require a phone number almost are a shout out to me for a family messenger system because I don't want to have to, to do that with, uh, with my kids. Now, I understand that the holdup for them dropping the phone number requirement was they needed to implement... Um, unique signal IDs. And so I, if they have, in fact, dropped the phone number, then uh, apparently that work has been done. So if you're looking between Telegram and Signal, and those are your two choices, choose Signal. It's a more secure messenger. It is more open source. It's developed in the community. Uh, all of those things, we all watch that happen. The downside to Signal and the downside to Moxie is they're very, very particular on third-party clients. And so it kind of dissuades a lot of people from using it. Um, one of the issues that came up was they wanted to have a fork called LibreSignal and a fork to work uh, basically to try to build an alternative client. And they said, no, we don't want you using the name. We really don't want third-party clients. We'll take care of it. And I'm sure, to Moxie's credit, it, it, it's probably fantastic for security. It's just not so great when your life involves playing with technology like Sailfish OS and Postmarket OS, and you're relying on Signal to make a functional client for some esoteric operating system that they maybe not even heard of, but I want to play with today, right? And so those kinds of things kind of keep me from going all in on something like Signal. On the other hand, I might suggest you consider something like Element, and here's why. First of all, you can just download the Element client, and if you don't want to host your own server, you can just sign up for a free account at matrix.org or linuxdelta.com if you want to, you know, we host a server as well. If you want a dedicated server only for you and your family, you want the best possible experience, you have a couple of options. First of all, you can host your own server, and there's more ways than ever to be able to do that. We'll talk about that in just a second. You can also just pay Element to host it for you, and they have a very reasonable plan. You can go over to uh, Element.io, and you can sign up for a paid plan. They start at just 10 bucks a month. That gives you, or excuse me, I think, yeah, $10 a month. That gives you five users, two bucks per user. Uh, and so for 120 bucks for the year, you have messaging taken care of. And if you ever want to eliminate that $120 a year, you want to take all that messaging inside, all you have to do is send a, a support request to EMS and say, hey, can you send me my private keys? They'll send you the server signing key. Bob's your uncle. You set it up on um, on your own system. And uh, the Linux Ninja in the chat room has a link to signal.org slash blog slash signal dash pins, which explains the new features that don't require 
phone numbers. Now, I said there's more ways than ever to host your own Matrix server. Uh, the Fedora Project has a fantastic article on Fedora Magazine on deploying your own Matrix server on Fedora Core OS. Now, Fedora Core OS, or FCOS, you get all of the benefits of Fedora, Podman, Cgrips, V2, SE Linux, packaged in an automatic updating way thanks to RPM OS tree. And so running a Matrix server requires a couple of things. Synapse, which is the actual Matrix server. Postgres, which is the database that stores all of the things from the Matrix server. Nginx, which is really a web server, but it's used for all sorts of proxying things inside of Matrix. Then you'll need a Let's Encrypt for Nginx, so we have SSL. And then finally, Element, which you can either host as a web instance on your server, and so people can just go to like chat.mydomain.com and start chatting, or you can run a local Element client and just connect to that server. Um, but it seems like every time I turn around, it started with it was just Synapse was in the repo and in the Debian repo, and so you would install it and then go through all of the requisite process to setting up a Synapse server. Then they went to the Ansible deploy script, which sped things up tremendously. Uh, took it down to maybe just under an hour to get everything all set up and federated and the whole night. Actually, not even that long, but maybe 20, 30 minutes. And now uh, it seems like every time you turn around, somebody has taken this container technology and said, hey, look, another way to do this. So I would if if you've ever considered if you're looking at switching over to your communication infrastructure, particularly for your family, something I would consider if I were you, because it'll be the last time you ever have to get all of your family members to change over. As long as you keep paying the bill, they're going to keep having messaging. Our second email comes in from MXU. MXU writes in and says, Hi, Noah, I work for a nonprofit and I need to live stream a virtual fundraising event in a few weeks. We expect about 300 attendees are likely to attend. In the past, my organization has used StreamYard to capture the broadcast. We typically send it to YouTube Live and our attendees view our live stream there on YouTube. Unfortunately, we expect to have singers this time and there are fears that the content licensing may have YouTube kill our broadcast due to copyright filters, which would be, of course, horrible for a fundraising event. I know StreamYard can send the broadcast to any RTMP server, not just YouTube, and the standard is, of course, to use OBS. My problem is that my organization would take too long to get a beefy enough desktop to handle OBS for this use case. So it would actually be faster for me, and approval and budget-wise, to use an RTPM server on a VPS like DigitalOcean. And then I suppose I could play with the stream embed with HTML uh, player on my own site, but I don't know which RTMP server is best to use. Could you recommend an RTMP server that I can install and set up on a VPS? P.S. I'm a DevOps. I have DevOps chops, but not OBS skills, hence my preference for the server side instead of OBS. Thanks so much and keep up the great show, MXU. So thanks for writing in, MXU. I, I guess we'll start here. Uh, there, are, there are three components here. You have the broadcaster or the machine that is going to generate the content. You have the CDN, which is the thing, the RTMP server, the thing that, that ingests the RTMP stream and then either spits it back out in a web player or sends it to all of the destinations. Um, and so in that case, it might be YouTube. It might be StreamYard. could be a number of different places. And then the third component is... The client, the client, the viewer, the person who sits down in front of their website to view the content that you're broadcasting. So in the case of StreamYard, StreamYard is doing a number of things for you. It is both the the uh, the broadcast machine. It's the thing that is generating content and sending it through StreamYard. It's also your CDN because StreamYard can send to multiple destinations and they're very well equipped to do so and do video in the whole nine yards. And so you could absolutely just send uh, a StreamYard RTMP feed 
to an RTMP server on your own and embed a, a, a video player on your site. Uh, you could absolutely do that. Uh, you could, as you pointed out, you could also use OBS. I would also challenge the assertion that you would need a particularly beefy machine to run OBS. Keep in mind, OBS can encode over the CPU. So if you have even a even a, a, a three, four-year-old machine uh, that you can buy for a few hundred dollars, as long as you only have one or two video sources, it's not going to be an issue uh, for that machine to stream OBS. Of course, the more powerful the machine you have, the better. But there's no reason you couldn't do that with StreamYard if you're comfortable with StreamYard. As for an RTMP server, so when you're looking at an RTMP server, you're really you're considering building a CDN. And you have to consider how many people are going to pull that stream down. Because if you set up a DigitalOcean droplet, you set up an RTMP server, you set your stream there, and you embed that stream on your site – and 5,000 people show up and try and pull that stream, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get a denial of service on your uh, – you're going to DDoS your own uh, your own RTMP server. And so then you get into load balancing and et cetera. And, of course, then if you have somebody that wants to join from Germany or you wants to join from Russia, now all of a sudden you're spinning up servers in other countries. And so it becomes impractical to manage. YouTube is helpful because it's both a CDN and a content discovery platform. And so people are keen to, to stream to there because one, it doesn't matter how many people watch your stream, Google's capable of handling it. And then two, there's eyeballs that can discover your content, which is certainly not the case if you're doing it yourself. So with all of that said, we can't do much about the content discovery aspect of it, except promote on those other platforms and drive them back to your website. But and, I, and so I always recommend you're in control of the infrastructure you're using to, and make intentional decisions about who you're going to work with. So there's a couple different ways you can set this up. You asked about an RTMP server. I've done that with Nginx. I'll have a link for you in the show notes, the guide that I used to set up the RTMP server. Now, we actually used this server uh, to start and stop streams to YouTube. If you remember back in the day, the JB days, we had something called SATCOM 1, SATCOM 2. And the idea was this. We sent a stream from the server or from the OBS machine up to SATCOM 1. And that's just an Nginx computer running on DigitalOcean. That Nginx server simply ingested a stream and then sent it out to a couple of different places, namely SATCOM 2. SATCOM 2 ingested SATCOM's one feed and then sent it out to YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, all those places, right? And so the idea was this. SATCOM 1 fed all the things that were streaming all the time, like the main JB site and all of those kinds of things. SATCOM 2 was spun up on demand or turned on on demand. We used DigitalOcean's API to control it from a chat room. And when that server came up, it ingested the stream from SATCOM 1 and spit it out to all of the destinations that we wanted to deliver them to. Um, very, very simple to set up. Literally install Nginx, copy and paste a config file and point your, uh, point your streaming software towards that server. The third option, though, that you have is you could go with a CDN that is more community-based. Alan Jude, good friend of mine, owns a company called Scale Engine. That's what we use here at Ask Noah to stream uh, the show every week. And it's, I think, one of the best CDNs out there. It has all of the features that the that, that his competition has, but it's available at a fraction of the price. You get it for 25 bucks a month, and that gets you the stream with the ability to push to YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, RTMP destinations, the whole nine yards. It also gives you a website embed, so you have a player right on your site. So if you go to asknoahshow.com slash live, you'll see there's a little HTML player. That's all provided to us by Scale Engine. So absolutely fantastic. And of course, they have uh, content on demand too. So if you have things that have come through your encoder and you want to go back and, 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 and watch those, then you have the opportunity to do that. You didn't specify what your organization was. If it's a church, you did specify it's nonprofit. If it's church, I would also look at Resi 
R E S I Resi. Resi is uh, it's it's a, might be a little bit outside of your budget depending on 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 what your budget is for this project. But one of the f- nice things about Resi is they're built specifically for church streaming, and they will actually send you a hardware box that does all of the encoding, and then they deal with all the CDNs and and all that kind of stuff. So all of those things are uh, all of those options are open to you. Hopefully that helps. If it doesn't, email us back or give us a call at eight fifty five four fifty Noah on uh, on Tuesday night. Our third email comes in from James. Oh, actually, excuse me. Our third email comes in from Landon. Landon writes in and says, something to consider for James's backup last week is Deja Dupe. It's a FOSS backup utility from the GNOME project, and I think it does a great job for just this use case. Specifically, it addresses two problems for James. One, it only backs up his working files, slash home, slash downloads, etc. So you don't have to waste time iterating through every file in the file system. Secondly, it keeps incremental backups. This is a key problem if James really needs to keep track of those files. Let's say a file becomes corrupt, but it takes James two days to discover this. If he's already arsynced that file to both of his hard drives, then that file is effectively corrupted everywhere. Deja Dupe will keep multiple versions of the file uh, of the external drive and will allow James to go back in time and recover the correct version of that file. I've built a comprehensive command line utility it's a comp- it's built off a comprehensive command line utility called Duplicity, uh, but I think the GUI does a good job for both backing up uh, and particularly restoring specific files and going back in time. I'm pretty sure that you can script automatic backups, execute once the hard drive has been inserted, if you like. It has a whole host of other features that can be found on the Gnome's project website. You can learn more at wiki.gnome.org slash apps slash Deja Dupe. Thanks for the great show. Hope this helps James and everyone else. Thanks, Landon. So yeah, uh, Deja Dupe is actually, I think that was the default, maybe still is, default backup utility in Ubuntu for years. And I, I had used it. It works great. Um, the only issue I ran into is just that in servers, obviously, we don't have UIs. And so I I just had become comfortable with rsync and it has not let me down yet. Uh, actually, a lot of macOS Time Machine, if you've ever used that, is built off this, this same idea of a rolling delta. And so every time your data set changes, uh, the system is able to keep track of what those changes are, almost kind of like snapshotting. And so you have the ability to roll back in time to any particular point of where there was a change in the delta. Now, the other way to get around that, um, if you're doing an rsync router, if you're doing manual drives, is of course you have your your data in three places. And in this way, if drive one backs up to drive two every night, and drive two dumps to drive three maybe weekly, and drive three dumps to drive four monthly, and maybe drive four dumps to drive five semi-annually, something like that, right? If you're following some sort of a, a schedule like that, when you notice a file is missing, you can always go back further in time. My personal data collection uh, I even go so far as at the end of every year, I take all of the, the important things that I've done that year or have created in, in digital form and burn those to a Blu-ray archive. And that gets stored s- somewhere else so that even, if nothing else, I have a read-only copy of all of the data somewhere. I appreciate you writing in, though, and hopefully that does help James. Our fourth email comes in from Will. Will writes in and says, Hi, Noah. You led a very interesting discussion about deplatforming last show. I appreciate you keeping the discussion apolitical. I agree that in general, self-hosting gives you more control over the content and who has a say in how it's presented. However, I'm not sure that it's the solution you presented to be. I think that because we do not have net neutrality in the United States, that ISPs operate under similar regulations to AWS, meaning just like AWS, any ISP could simply choose to, resu- choose to refuse to service clients who behave in a way that th- it does not like. So for services that are not decentralized, there might be some content 
that is so extreme that it can't find any company that will give it a stable access to the Internet. I would be curious what your thoughts are. So interestingly enough, I was actually having a conversation with Chris about this earlier today. Uh, even if you own your own metal, even if you say, I'm going to self-host my own server, I'm going to buy my own metal, I'm going to put it in my own data center, I'm going to pay, put, there's nobody to shut me down. I run everything. You still have to get connected. You still have to run that server somewhere. And so you can run it out of your house, which is probably, honestly, more of an uphill battle because most home ISPs are going to, your terms of service are going to prevent you from doing hosting. Um, but if you do it in data center, the data center has an agreement and you're going to sign an agreement. And just like social groups can place pressure on server hosting companies, they can absolutely place pressure onto a data center and say, hey, we want this thing off the Internet. So the answer to that is a blockchain or decentralized style infrastructure. Let's say, for example, I have the Linux Delta server that runs Matrix. And because our data center doesn't like the fact that we talk about Fedora, I'm just going to make that up. They put it, they, they pull my agreement and say, we're going to shut your server down. So now Linux Delta is gone. We can't communicate. Well, first off, those of you who have an account on matrix.org or jupiterbroadcasting.com or, or run your own matrix server, you're all still going to be able to continue the discussion in the same way that you already have been. You're not even really going to notice a difference except that some of the people are no longer responding. Meanwhile, I, who have lost access to my own matrix infrastructure, go sign up for an account at a new server or set up, set up my own new server. I log back in. Somebody else who's an admin of the room makes me an admin again on my new account. Now I reset the address of the chat room to the new server and we're back up and running. And this probably takes maybe 10 minutes for me to, 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 to iterate through all of that. So the only people that are going to be affected are those on one server instance. And in the case of Matrix HQ, literally there are thousands of servers that replicate that room. So there are thousands of users don't even have accounts at matrix.org, but are participating in that discussion. And so you can take matrix.org offline, but that barely scratches the surface in the case of that room. The rest of the entire world is going to keep on trucking as if nothing ever happened. And those people that are on matrix.org realistically are going to find its way back online soon enough. And so it makes it very expensive and very difficult to shut down a very small portion of a community. And for that reason, I think that decentralized blockchain style infrastructure is a better way to go. By the way, in the chat room, uh, JJ4, or uh, who was it? Uh, I guess we don't know. But uh, somebody in the chat room said snapshots are not backups. And of course, they're, they're not. Um, but they do. Snapshots are a way to, uh, to, to increase uptime. And so if you have snapshots and you don't have to drive over uh, to the offsite backup place to go dig through data to find the file that Joe accidentally deleted, that's a good thing, right? Our fifth email comes in from Lucas. Lucas says, hi, Noah. I can't remember the episode number, but at some point you had mentioned an ad Android parental control that you and your family use to track each other and control the kids' phones. What is the name of the app and can you still recommend it? So it's not so much parental control as it is kind of... Uh, uh, I, I don't even really know what the term is, family coordination, I guess. The app that I had mentioned was Life360, uh, and it really is a fantastic experience. You install the Life360 app. You, I think it costs a few hundred some dollars a year, and then all of your other family members can download and install the app. They get added to their, your circle, and it will do very interesting things. Like So, for example, my wife goes to pick up the kids. It knows when she's approaching the school radius, and so I get a push alert. Hey, don't worry about picking up your kids. Your wife has got it. Those are like those are the the kind of areas that Life 360 really helps, and of course, yeah, you can put it on the kids' phone, and then kind of keep track of them too. The downside is, I started to dig into the privacy policy, and so the first thing is, 
They they partner with a company called Arity, A-R-I-T-Y, um, which is essentially an analytics firm that tracks people, collects data on people, and then sells it. Uh, and so they do have a cockamamie way that you can go through their privacy policy and exempt yourself. And then there's, I think, a separate thing that you can do for California because there's a law in California that they have to abide by not selling information so that you can fill out that request. And you could probably get it to the point where it's not doing very much damage if you want. I gave up. I, I paid for one year. I thought it was a great product, didn't like the privacy policy and bailed. Um, what I'm playing with now is uh, is a project called OwnTracks, OwnTracks.org. Now, OwnTracks allows you to keep track of your own location. You can build a private location diary. You can share that location diary with your family or friends. Now, OwnTracks, as you might expect, completely open source, uses open protocols for communication. And so you know that your data is going to be safe, private, and secure. Uh, you can install OwnTracks on your smartphone. You can connect to an existing server, or you can set up your own server. Now, OwnTrax uh, uses MQ MQTT by default, which is an open, lightweight messaging standard, uh, and they 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 combine that with HTTP, and that's um, that's essentially what powers OwnTrax. Now, I've not played with it uh, extensively. Um, I I set it up, played with it for a little bit, said, "Yep, this kind of does what I'm looking to do." Long term, what I'm really interested in doing is integrating either OwnTrax or something like it into Home Assistant and managing and tracking that way. That way, everything is in uh, under my umbrella, under my control, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, OwnTracks.org, if you're looking for the specific app that I had mentioned last time, it is Life360. It's available in the Google Play Store and uh, Apple iTunes. Our pick of the week this week is the MMORPG Tycoon 2. So, I don't usually recommend games, and I don't usually play games, but... Steve mentioned to me this week that this game has started to eat parts of his life away. And he's like, you just have to check this out. So I had an opportunity to dig into it a little bit this afternoon. And guys, this game is incredible. So I'll start here. It's an early access game. And that shouldn't stop you because everything works just fine. But just so you know, and so that we're not overly critical of the developer, it is an early access game. The developer is very active in the community. He very much wants feedback. So the game is called MMORPG Tycoon, and it's a single-player MMO, but the idea is that you build an MMO. So the game launches, and basically you're, you, you're sitting at a desktop operating system. And one of the icons in the desktop operating system allows you to create a, a new world. So you do that, and that creates a game instance. Game instance sucks you in, and this little animation flies you from sitting at your desktop screen into the server, and you go down and into the chip. And on, you guys didn't know this, but on top of the processors on the chips that are on side on the motherboard, there there's little worlds. And so as you go in, you get into this little world, and then you have zones. And once you're in the server and you've landed, uh, you have to start setting these things up. And so you land on one of the zones and you have to start building these zones for uh, your players and your users who are going to play. Now, it's a single player game, so all of the users are just their AI. But the idea is you're trying to build uh, the best MMO for them to want to play in. And so the better the experience is, 
the, 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 the more players you're going to have. And so you have to run fiber interconnects from one zone to another and make sure that you keep all of your users happy, that they all have good enough uplinks. You have to watch, uh, your software version, which increments as players play the game and, uh, and continue to build your world up. And as that zone reaches a particular software revision, uh, you do better. It's a score, right? Massively addicting game. Massively addicting game. Now, the game is put out by a company called Vector Storm. You can learn more at vectorstorm.com.au. What impresses me about Vector Storm is, yes, the game is available on uh, the Steam Store, which is uh, where you where you where you purchase it. However, it's it's an independent uh, you know game studio, and and this guy is doing a lot of the development, not for this game specifically, but a lot of his development he's doing out in the open. Um, I don't know what specifically the reasons are or aren't for not publishing this as open source. It just says that. The code is not available right now, um, but a very active developer with a very fun and addicting game. Make sure to check it, check it out. You can learn more at uh, steampower.com. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our gadget of the week this week. I am a huge fan of Cody, but I, in fact, I go months at a time without ever leaving the Cody screen. But very occasionally... Uh, I have to use a streaming service or something like that, and so I'll, I'll duck out to the, the, the main menu. And when I do that, what I found is the best player out there is the NVIDIA Shield. Now, I like to use my NVIDIA Shield with a universal remote control, and my, the best universal remote control I've found is the Innocent 4-in-1, and so that uses IR. And so I want to be able to use IR remotes. Now, there's a few ways you can do that. The easiest way is to just buy the Pro Model NVIDIA Shield because it has an IR receiver in. But they've discontinued that now. They still make a Pro Model, but it no longer has IR. So I'm left with a few options. First, you can get an IR receiver from Flerk, which works well enough, but I've not taken the time to, de- to, to develop a perfect key map. And plus, it's a little extra USB device that has to be sticking out of the thing and the whole nine yards, right? There's no USB port on the front of the shield, which means if you're mounting it under the TV, not ideal. The second is you can use a uh, – Innocent makes an IR receiver, and you can do it that way. Um, but again, not really ideal either. So the last way that you get to is – uh, is that you can uh, essentially go to a different box altogether. And so I started to look, who makes a box that can run Cody flawlessly? And I came across OSMC. You can learn more at osmc.tv. Now, OSMC is the open source media center. It's a free and open source media player based on Linux. It was founded in 2014, and OSMC lets you play back media from your local network, attached storage, and from the internet. OSMC is the leading media center in terms of feature sets and community. Of course, it's based off of the Kodi project. Now, I read a couple of reviews they are stellar. Apparently, this is a flawless Kodi experience. They also make a device. It's called the Vero 4K. It's a PC-grade performance without the PC. It has it, it features 4K video, gigabit Ethernet, 10-bit HDR content, 192 kilohertz PCM Vero uh, 4K audio. It supports 7.1 channel, bit-perfect pass-through of major audio formats, including DTS HD, Master Audio, and DTS X, Dolby True HD, and Dolby Atmos, with support for optical audio and analog out. Get this, has an IR and an RF receiver, so I can use any remote. It comes with an RF remote, HDMI 2.0 with CEC control, which means you can control the box from your TV remote, and it comes with a TV mounting kit, which has been another one of my concerns because a lot of the uh, lesser-known brands simply don't have mounting kits available for them because nobody thinks to make a bracket for them. It's not going to be an issue with the Vero 4K uh, because they include one. 
Our next guest is Brian Exobeard. He is a community business owner with Red Hat and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. So, Brian, I want to welcome you to the show, and I want to start by asking what your role at Red Hat is. What do you do there? I sit on a team of business owners who are all thinking about different, uh, we call them markets, but basically different segments. Um, like I have a colleague who thinks only about the mid-market segment, which has a very specific definition. They have specific kinds of problems. And his role is to go into that market segment and kind of look at the challenges that they have and identify the things that Red Hat should be helping with. So my job is to think about our upstream community distributions that we sponsor, as well as the entire upstream space and how it kind of connects into RHEL, and think about the kind of issues and challenges that they have in those spaces and where Red Hat should be stepping in to support. It's not an engineering role. It is a product side role. But I think about, like, how does code flow through our ecosystem so that people can participate? Um, what are the specific challenges that, say, Fedora or the CentOS project are having? And should RHEL step in and help them? Should we just enable the community to self-support in those cases? Like, what should we be doing? Um, and that's, that's how I connect through, and that's my role. Red Hat has had a long track history of being deeply involved in the community. And over the past five or so years, we've seen even more of that, particularly with community outreach and so on and so forth. The Fedora team has been probably more accessible and more vocal about their work. They've started to work with industry partners to provide OEM hardware. And I think all of this speaks to a larger message from Red Hat that they are removing friction for people working in the Red Hat world. And so when the announcement first came out that they were going to sunset CentOS proper and 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 replace it with CentOS streams. I think there was, and I'll be the first to admit, an unjustified guttural reaction from the community that you know mom had taken the free cookie jar away. But it seemed like the biggest problem was how this information had been presented. And of course, as we're all aware on the internet, if we don't have the answers, then we just make them up, right? We'll just make up information to fill in the gaps. And that's not constructive, and that's not helpful to a, to a constructive dialogue. And so in the absence of that missing dialogue and missing perspective, we chose to kind of sat back and kind of wait to see how Red Hat had responded to the community. So before we get to where we are today and, and the announcement that you're making, Brian, what was the reasoning behind the decision for Red Hat to move from CentOS to CentOS Stream, which of course means that it's now an upstream continual release schedule. A one point release ahead. Excuse me, yes. Um, so the, the decision is we want to do things that, as you've said, remove friction and enable the entire ecosystem to grow. And I don't just necessarily mean the enterprise Linux ecosystem here. I mean like all of Linux to grow. And a lot of these decisions are really hard. So we have a history of having to have made hard decisions around this. Our decision here, we were thinking about the fact that if you, if you think back pre-December 8th of 2020, the model that you had for developing RHEL was we have Fedora. Fedora does amazing work. And every three years, we go to the Fedora project and go, this stuff is amazing. And we're going to take it and make RHEL. And they're like, that's fantastic. And then we take it and we make RHEL. Only we made it behind our firewall, mostly with our own engineers and select partners and, and other friends who, who helped us develop it. And then we, every six months, we released it in RHEL. And if you found a bug, if you had a suggestion, if you had an idea, if you just wanted to, you know, like go, hey, wait a minute, before you do that, can we talk about it? There was not a good path for participation there. Um, and if you take somebody at the, the far end of that code tree, if you take somebody who was using rebuilt code, 
they had almost literally no way of participating. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of CentOS Linux users who were like, you know, I found a bug. By the time I could even manage to figure out how to report that bug in a way that Red Hat could see it and take action on it, the code had already moved through possibly two minor releases. Um, it just was very difficult to even become engaged and involved. So by moving to the CentOS Stream model, we have opened up all of that to community participation, to allowing people to see where we're going, to allowing people to influence the operating system. Did IBM's acquisition of Red Hat have anything to do with this decision, or was this already being talked about prior to the acquisition of Red Hat by IBM? We have known for a long time that we had this contribution challenge, um, and we've been trying to find the right way to move forward to it. That, that had nothing, like that predates everything. Um, on the IBM question very specifically, I want to be emphatic and say they had nothing to do with it. I was in the room. They were not. Um, I promise you. The only thing that you could argue that IBM had any involvement at all in this decision was they were one of the small number of entities that were given a heads-up notice about 24 to 48 hours before the announcement went live. We had talked to the CentOS board about the fact that we needed to make a couple of those disclosures because IBM and some others are the kind of folks who have customers who are going to pick up the phone that minute and call them. And we don't do that to our partners. Um, we want everybody to have an equal opportunity to be able to say, hey, this is what's going on. You need to talk to Red Hat. Um, and, you know, if you think about an organization like IBM, it's very difficult and, at that scale to be able to communicate that message without about 24 to 48 hours. Other folks can communicate that almost instantly. Um, I will say that the, maybe the single difference for IBM and other partners who got early disclosure is IBM got a significantly higher level executive from Red Hat to give them a call because of our relationship with them. <laughs> but that's really it. yet. Sure. And, and like to take it to the nth degree, literally this morning, I made a presentation as part of a group to an IBM internal team. They got the exact same deck that our partners get. They got the exact same conversation that our partners get. Um, we are neutral with regards to working with them. With many new developers and projects and companies spinning up on uh, VPS providers uh, and virtualizing their infrastructure, what's Red Hat's strategy to gaining market share in that area that has been predominantly uh, has been predominantly dominated by the Ubuntu and Debian variants? So we believe there's a couple of ways that, uh, first of all, I want to remind everyone, I don't actually work in our field and uh, other revenue-oriented units. While I do work for our real product management team, I'm, I think, the only person on that team who doesn't have a revenue number associated with their work. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, but what we believe is true is that there are legitimate reasons to choose the various distributions that are part of the enterprise Linux ecosystem, and that RHEL in particular has some very um, appropriate use cases for the folks who are doing this work in the cloud. Um, our hybrid multi-cloud strategy um, like emphasizes that to the nth degree. Where I would take this back is that we do recognize that there has been some friction to using RHEL in these use cases in some cases. And a lot of the programs that we're working on now, including some of the ones that we're announcing today, remove that friction as well. So it goes beyond just removing the friction for the whole open source participation. 
That's awesome to hear. What value does the CentOS project and the CentOS community have to Red Hat? What were Red Hat's goals with CentOS when they acquired the project uh, in 2014? And, and maybe how has that landscape shifted now? I love this question um, in part because it, it reminds me of something from my own life. I remember um, I have the privilege of having some investments. And I remember about 15 years ago calling my broker at the time and going like, how do you make money? Because I couldn't find any fees in my statements, right? And I needed to understand this. And it led me to the rabbit hole of learning about how, in this case, it was American investment structure and, and schemes work. And so I think this is a great question because the beauty of open source is the person who writes the code, the person who maybe productizes that code, we all have a vision, right? But anybody can take that code and do anything, um, like, I think it's the Genesis story for Instagram, where they weren't writing a picture-sharing app. They had something else, and picture-sharing was like this accidental, like, we added it one weekend thing, and all of a sudden, it's their whole application. Um, when Red Hat began working with the CentOS project, we had a very specific focus. At that time, if you think back to, what was it, like 2004, where was Linux, where was the ecosystem, where was all of, all of, all of business, we were all focused on virtualization. We needed a stable product, or excuse me, a stable base operating system that the virtualization open source projects could work on top of RHEL wasn't, because of terms and other things, going to work out here. So we went and we said, hey, we're going to work with one of these rebuilders. It's close enough for this development function that we can provide a platform that everybody can come together around. And then we can productize this through stabilization and, and all of the things that make the products of Red Hat great. And that was where we got involved with CentOS. Um, other people chose to take this, this base platform that we had put together for development and do other things with it. That's great. Those weren't within our interest in the project. When CentOS, CentOS was never a, a perfect option for enterprise. It was, first of all, there's a misconception that it wasn't a one-on-one -on -one product with Red Hat. Yes, it's built from the same code base, but CentOS didn't get all of the same security patches as fast as Red Hat got them, so on and so forth. And so CentOS Stream begins to address some of these issues. You touched on that at the beginning of our interview, but what specifically is going to allow CentOS Stream to be a benefit uh, to to people that work inside of the Red Hat infrastructure and really need to understand the changes that are coming down the pipe. So uh, at its most basic level, you can think of CentOS Stream as something that you throw into your CI system and you make sure the green bubble always stays on because that tells you your line of business app, your next, if you're, say, a, a virtual hosting provider, the next generation that's going to roll out when the rail rolls out, all of that stuff should work fine. You're absolutely going to need to test with the betas and the snaps and all of the fun things that we produce at Red Hat to help people get ready for the actual release. But you're going to be prepared. That should be a very simple and easy process. The other thing that we look at is if you go back to like that virtualizations use case that we've talked about, if you're building something on top of the operating system, there are times when it's your code that needs to change and there are times when it's the operating system that needs to change. Um, and in those cases, you now have a pathway to say, hey, this change needs to be made. But more importantly, when somebody else says, hey, this change needs to be made, you have a canary and you can react to that change and make sure it's not going to break you. And we feel like that is setting the whole ecosystem forward. We do recognize 
There's a cadre of uh, entities and people out there who are much more able to consume change now than they were a decade ago. Um, if you look at, like, in the announcement that we made earlier, uh, prior to uh, in the December 8th announcement, I believe, actually, is when we mentioned it for the first time, um, Facebook has derived an operating system from CentOS Stream. Uh, they can absorb a very rapid pace of change due to their ability, and they, they've given presentations on this at the CentOS Dojo uh, in Brussels uh, and at DevConf uh, Czech Republic, about how they can do some level of testing in production because they shard their production systems, they have a Linux engineering team, they roll out a new operating system every 14 days. That's not real for a lot of people, but it is real for some. So there's a lot of opportunity, we think, getting created there. Do you think more businesses are going that model, having an opportunity or having had the opportunity to interview some people from Facebook and see the, the forward momentum of, of that company? Is that model becoming more common to you than the, hey, we installed it 10 years ago and we put it in the corner and that server just runs for 10 years? So uh, we're drifting a bit into my opinion as opposed to Red Hat's uh, particular opinion. But what I would say is that look at the rise of containers. Um, in my opinion, one of the things that containers has done is highlighted the too fast, too slow problem, uh, as a colleague of mine always calls it. Um, I would break it down like this. I want my container host to be a rock-solid thing. My containers might be ephemeral and last four seconds, uh, in the case of a microservices architecture. And I might literally rebuild them from latest and greatest, put them through CI, and then push them out. Um, like I do think that we are slowly moving in that direction, but I think it's going to take a while for it to be more than just the early adopter curve that has adopted that. And so there's still a very large need for the kind of stability and, and life cycle that, you know, things like rel provide. You know, I had a, uh, uh, a unique experience. I had the opportunity to thank some people from Red Hat the last time I was at Red Hat summit, um, and I, I, I shared a story with them that my 10-year-old son um, had the opportunity to spin up a Minecraft server. And he said, I want to set up a Minecraft server. And so we gave him a CentOS install. And he installed the operating system and set his IP address up and downloaded the packages and, and, and went through that entire process. And when he got done, he said, Dad, is that kind of what you do at work? Is that, is, is that similar? And I said, not only is it similar, it's the exact same software that we install on servers at work. And it just, his eyes got big. And, and that was in a cool experience that this 10-year-old has the opportunity to play with enterprise software. Because when I was 10 years old and I went and asked my dad for a copy of whatever it was, Windows 2000 server, he's like, well, that costs hundreds of dollars. We're not going to pay for that for you. And so there was no option for me to explore technology in that way. But thanks to Red Hat and open source, there is an opportunity for him. What is coming down the pipe for individuals who want to experience, learn Red Hat, even run it as a... I, I, I say production when I say they want to rely on it, but it's for individual use. So um, we've always had this opportunity. Well, we've had this opportunity for a number of years through our developer program for people to access Red Hat products uh, for individual development purposes use. Uh, development purposes has a very specific meaning in this program um, that basically excluded production in most definitions of, of the word. And we recognize that there is a need for, as you've described it, your son's Minecraft server. Um, that's production to him. 
he relies on that. You know, his, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know anything about Minecraft, but my understanding is that other people show up on your server. Yes. So his friends and, and, and colleagues are going to show up on the server and it needs to be up. That's right. Um, mission critical to them. Exactly. And so before, you know, this upcoming announcement, you couldn't do that through our developer program. So one of the things that we're doing is we're extending the individual developer program to say, hey, we recognize there's this need. We recognize people need a a no-cost accessible production system. We're going to make RHEL available for those use cases. Um, we're expanding it so that there'll be 16 entitlements available to people to run in production. Have a nice day. Do what you need to do. No salesperson is going to call you. You're going to get your updates. You're on self-support. If you want to call us, you're going to need to get a support agreement. But otherwise, go for it. Like, please, go invent a better Minecraft. That would be awesome. Point blank, Brian, is there any difference between what is com what what is going to become the developer program where I can just go get an actual rel uh, you know self support license and install it in a non production environment for my home or small office or whatever it is can I do that is there any difference between that and what CentOS previously was three months ago I would argue yes um, and you you need to remember I'm here wearing a red hat right so from our perspective production belongs on rel. And we believe that RHEL provides the best single experience. So the huge difference for us is you're now running the right production operating system. It's an improvement for um, the users. It's an improvement. You're going to get security patches and features at the same time our customers get them. You're going to be on the same cadences. You're going to have that same set of stability. You're going to be able to run this for your environment. Okay, Brian. Uh, here's a here's a pivot question. I have it's not my son anymore. Now it's my mom's bakery, and she needs some customer management software to run. She doesn't have money to 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 purchase a support subscription, and frankly, your sales team would probably be wasting their time with her. Right? Um, is the, is there any option for to use this program to help her out? Absolutely. Um, the program is for individuals, so it's going to need to be in somebody's name. But that's a valid use case here. She's got less than 16 servers or say you're going to help her out. So you've got less than 16 servers under your own name. You're fine. Um, the thing that she needs to worry about is maybe she changes that cookie recipe. You decide to stop helping her out in the bakery. Essentially, the license walks out the door with you. So she needs to be, you know, appropriate about that. Keep making good cookies. But um, <laughs> other than that, like she can do whatever she wants. Like you you can absolutely set up MailPrint Web, CRM, whatever it was you needed to set up with her. Um, and I guess I should add to this. Um, your mom's bakery may not actually be the best data center environment in the world. Flower does a number on servers. Um, so maybe your mom actually has some terminals and they're connected to, you know, some public cloud providers virtual instance because that's easier for you to maintain from wherever you live. You can take these subscriptions into that virtual cloud provider. How is the 16 um, machine limit enforced? So, for example, can I sign up an account for my mother? Could I sign up for an account for myself? And as long as we're two individuals, yeah, I'm the guy that comes over and helps her actually run the commands on her server. But it's her server and it's under her account and it's under her name. Is that uh, within the spirit and the rules of this new agreement? It is within the spirit and the rules. I, I, I want to be very clear. There, are, It's definitely a legal agreement that you're entering into with, with Red Hat. So obviously, you know, she needs to be cognizant of the fact that she is signing up for this program and needs to be a, an appropriate legal actor in this. So your, your child who has not yet reached the age of majority in your country 
would not be an appropriate legal actor. That said, I also want to make it really clear. One of the other changes we're making in this program is we are trying to eliminate all of the friction to signing up. Um, like one of our one of our goals is to like, oh, you have an account on one of these other large things that people get accounts on, say the Fedora Project or GitHub or whatever. We want to enable like, okay, I've got that. I can just sign into this program with it. Um, but but all of that being said, yes, that's within the spirit of the program. Something that's important to keep in mind is that like management is not in scope here. So you may not find that managing those servers across those two accounts is the seamless experience you would like it to be because they're supposed to be separate. They're supposed to be individually managed machines. Um, and that's where you get into the use cases where other programs for RHEL or RHEL proper in terms of just a, a, a normally purchased subscription would be the right fit. Let's talk about that for a moment. So uh, going with my mother's bakery, and by the way, my mom's not a baker, so it's a perfect example because it's entirely fictional. Um, her bakery is growing, and she her single rel server that we set up is it's just no longer cutting it. Now we need to expand infrastructure. By the way, I don't have time for it, so now she really wants to be able to call Red Hat and get some support for them. What does the process look like for somebody from going from one of these developer free license to a full-on supported enterprise production-ready server? I don't actually know what the customer journey in terms of the experience is going to look like there, but it should be very simple. Like our goal is to make that um, almost as much as a go to the web store and get your purchase completed and now you can call Red Hat level experience as we possibly can. Um, this is perhaps going to sound silly to some some listeners, but like a web store is actually very hard to run for a company the size of Red Hat because of the nature of the products we sell. Like, you know, people who buy a billion dollars of Rel don't just go to a web store and click Check you out. Know, <laughs> the up arrow a million times or whatever. Um, so a, I'm not sure the exact functionality, but we recognize that it needs to be as friction-free of a process as it was for her to initially sign up for the developer program. Brian, before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add about uh, about this program or about the announcement that Red Hat is making? So I, I think the things that I would, would add are, um, one, if I can, I'd like to talk a little about what we're doing for enterprise developers as a part of this. Um, but I, I do want to kind of recap, if I can. Uh, we're expanding the individual program. This is also, by the way, it's access to more than just RHEL. It's just RHEL is my area of interest. Um, and so there'll be details on, on what all you can get access to. But it's going to have those 16 production systems in it at no cost with self-support. Um, and then we're going to move forward with an enterprise version of this as well for our existing customers that's going to roll out no-cost access to developer RHEL for them as a part of their enterprise subscription that they already have. And that's going to help a lot of our customers manage large numbers of developers who need access to developmental RHEL. One of the other things that we heard was the developer program's been fantastic for them, but they're like, I literally have an overhead of getting a 1,000 people enrolled in this program. Can you please make that easier? Um, kind of the last thing that I would add is this isn't it. We have a lot of other groups that we're trying to figure out programs for, and, and part of the reason we needed to make the announcement the way we did was there was not a way to have these conversations without letting everybody know where the universe was driving towards. So we've got more programs coming. They are not scheduled on a magical schedule of priority. They're literally scheduled on an end. As they come out of the oven, to extend the bakery example, they go out. Like, and so these two programs were the easiest to get out for us. 
Um, and so a big thing is if you're a CentOS Linux user who is concerned, first of all, if you're on CentOS Linux 7, remember nothing changed for you. You've still got a lot of time. We'd love to talk to you about options if that's something you want to talk to us about, but you don't have to be worried yet. Um, the second is if you're not hearing your program, if you're not feeling like you're, you know, you're getting the love here, please send us an email at centos-questions at redhat.com. That goes literally to me and two other people who do not work in sales. Um, our sole job is to write programs, and there are some groups which have historically never had a relationship with Red Hat. So we don't 100% understand your challenges, and we don't want to just go make up a program that doesn't actually solve your problems. So we really need to talk to folks to understand what their use cases are. You know, like... What has been your friction to using RHEL? Is it is it price? Is it terms and conditions? Um, there's an interesting one that came up in, in research where a visiting researcher who goes to a lab can, in some countries, trigger redistribution under the law, and redistribution isn't allowed. So, like, we need to figure out how to help those folks. Brian Exelbeard, he is the community business owner from Red Hat, also the Red Rel product management team and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and sharing this exciting news. I I suspect I said the the day this announcement came out, I said that I believed Red Hat was still connected to the community, was still considering community feedback and would react re- appropriately. So I'm 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 really excited that Red Hat has taken a situation that Maybe wasn't met with a ton of excitement originally, but it seems as of right now, the experience that Red Hat is delivering to both the customers that can't afford a Red Hat proper license, as well as the people who, uh, and they're just testing it in their homes and experimenting and development and all of those things, Red Hat is going to continue to support those people just under a different name. And as you so eloquently said, now it's actual production code. It's the exact same code and the exact same product that you will be using when you decide to to make the change to to a supported rel system by the way as far as for 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 listeners out there if you're looking to purchase a rel subscription redhat.com it took me 30 seconds to click on red hat store and uh, and you can purchase the server license for 349 if you want a uh, an easy to administrator uh, uh, self, uh, I believe that's the self-hosted option. They also have the Red Hat Enterprise Linux Workstation, which uh, is for 179 Then it goes up from there, depending on what you need. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the show. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And the music means we're out of time. Again, a huge thanks to Brian Exelbeard and the entire team at Red Hat for what they're doing. If you want to learn more, check out this week's show notes by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. To stay up with the latest, follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at Colonel Linux or the show at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Have a great week. We'll see you next Tuesday.